Designing, manufacturing, installing, and maintaining the high-speed electronic computers, the largest and most complex computers ever built. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Building Better Systems podcast, where we chat with people in industry and academia that work on hard problems around building safer and more reliable software and hardware. My name is Joey Dodds. And I'm Spat Morino. Spat and I work at Galois, a research and development lab that focuses on high assurance systems development and broadly hard problems in computer science. Today, we're chatting with Ian Whiteside, who is a principal scientist and the director of assurance at 5AI a company that builds software development platforms for self-driving systems, as well as software components that others can use in their autonomous vehicles. Ian's background is in formal verification and system safety, and he spends a lot of his time working on how to build safer autonomous vehicles. In this two-part episode, we talk about some of the challenges and some of the more novel solutions that make it a bit easier to make these systems safer. In part one, we talk about how Ian and his team formalize and check the different actions and situations that a car finds itself in while on the road. Ian discusses how they're leveraging signal temporal logic and domain specific languages to reason about the rules of the road. These tools make it easier to develop building blocks that reason about the world abstractly from the point of view of an autonomous vehicle. So it's a very interesting conversation. This sort of planning is fully dependent on sensor data, of course. But processing sensor data can be notoriously unpredictable. So in part two, we get into what it takes to make sure that the neural networks uh, used in building models of the world are as accurate as possible and how you might mitigate issues when they aren't. So make sure to check part two as well. Let's get into it. Thanks for joining us, Ian. No problem. Glad to be here. So your day-to-day -day work is on autonomous vehicles and and in particular, making sure that they're safe. Can you at a high level describe what that work involves? Yeah, sure, no problem. So so I guess we all know that autonomous vehicles are super cool and are going to you know, revolutionize the world. And we all know that actually people have been talking about them being just around the corner for for quite a few years now. And one of, one of the sort of main reasons for that is because building autonomous vehicles is a hard challenge, right? There's, there's a lot of complexity in the world, but an arguably harder challenge is to actually demonstrate and be confident yourself that the system is going to be safe and safe to go on the roads. And generally what we mean by, you know, showing an autonomous vehicle is safe is actually trying to compare it to human levels of driving performance and Generally, because these are machines, there's a little bit of a desire for them to be better than humans. So the, the sort of challenge of the field that I work in is how can you demonstrate that an autonomous vehicle is as safe as we know humans are? Because humans are actually pretty good at driving. Um, my wife would say something different. But anyway, so it, it's, it's worth taking a step back to the early days of, of you know, autonomous vehicle testing when it, it seemed like the, the best thing to do was get these cars out on the road with uh, a human behind the steering wheel just in case something went wrong and see where the problems lie. And and that's super good for systems that are getting, you know, relatively mature and 
are capable of driving around the streets of Mountain View or um, relatively um, placid cities. And the challenge is that if you do some some sort of statistics 101 on how many miles you would have to drive of these vehicles with a human behind the wheel or whatever without seeing any dangerous incidents to be confident that they're going to be safer than humans, you end up um, with like mind-boggling numbers like tens of billions of miles. And the, the, the reason for that is because humans are actually really good. You know, the, 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 in the UK, I think it's every 10 million miles, there's actually a crash and it's less frequent for a fatality. Um, it, I think it's a little bit less than that in the US, but that, that means that to get, you know, uh, sort of confidence of, you know, two nines or three nines, you have to you know, multiply that number of miles. So basically we've got this problem that in order to make autonomous vehicles economically viable, we have to find other ways of testing them other than just driving them on the roads. And so inter-simulation, which is the sort of the, the clear answer, you know, build a massive data center, a lot of cloud computing and run your autonomous vehicle system in virtual worlds, Grand Theft Auto style, um, you know, hundreds of hundreds of miles um, a second or whatever speed you want to be able to do it. And then you can you can make a mile of autonomous driving an extremely risky mile because you can set up all sorts of um, of crazy decisions from humans for that. And th this is a really powerful approach, actually, because it gives you control over testing your requirements, which is, you know, as a formal verification person, um, you, you'll know that that is, that is a good thing to have requirements. So, you know, basically part of your job sounds like is how do we uh, make these simulation environments in a way that they're as close to the real world as possible. So when we test things there, they translate into the real world. Um, how do you how do you do that in a way that that actually is as close to a one to one comparison? Because it feels like you, know, you try things in simulation and then you know everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, sort of thing with with reality. Yeah, ex exactly. That that's a that's a real challenge. That's that's one of one of the biggest of them. So you can run a test in simulation, um, and your vehicle doesn't crash, uh, or your vehicle does crash, and you need to know if in a similar situation in the real world your vehicle would still not crash or still crash. And furthermore, like if it crashes, you have to know if it was acceptable to crash or if that situation was just so unlikely to happen in the real world because. I mean, this is this is sort of one of the sort of I don't want to call it a dirty secret, but let me call it that for something pithy to say. Like, you know, in the safety industry, like, you know, we accept risk. So you're saying that there is a chance that bad things can happen, but I think that risk is acceptably low. And in the real world, when you drive and your system fails, you know that failure is a relevant failure and you need to fix it because it happened in the real world. But if you generate it in simulation, you don't necessarily know that it's a relevant failure because that particular combination of vehicles and sunlight or something like that was, was not likely to happen in the real world. Or even, you know, there's, there's no way that even a superhuman, like the, the best Formula One driver in the world could have avoided that collision. Uh, and so you have to start building models of what 
um, what an acceptable failure is, and you have to build models of, we, we call it saliency of a scenario, so how likely it is to happen. And then you have this whole other challenge of, well, in the in in simulation, you have to you know decide whether or not you want to generate photorealistic um, scenes that your neural networks that are you know basically at the other end of all those cameras and lidars in in an autonomous vehicle, if those neural networks are going to react in the same way to your synthetically generated scene and. That's that's a hard problem in the in the deep learning community called the, the domain adaptation problem because it from from pre and from personal experience neural networks are quite fragile too. Um, there there can be distributions. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. Taking I know. this approach is like a I guess a feels like a very healthy approach not just for autonomous vehicles but for software in general, right? The understanding that things are going to go wrong and then. That you know things are going to go wrong, basically, um, and then trying to trying to work within that framework is probably better um, than saying, "Well, we're just not going to make mistakes," right? Because if you go out the door and say, "Like we're we're not going to make mistakes," like you know, this week our programmers aren't going to introduce any bugs, um, then you're gonna you're not you're not going to be ready for that inevitability, right? So I think it, it feels like in a, in a way, autonomous vehicles the having to exist in the real world has forced that perspective on you, but I guess even for the sort of non-real, the, the machine only applications, this feels like a really valuable way to, to develop systems is with the understanding that things might fail and, and thinking about how do we recover? How do we minimize harm in, in that case? Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And, and, and this type of safety approach has been used in, in NASA and, and other places for a long time. Like there, there, there are lots of interesting acronyms like ASARP, which stands for as safe as reasonably practicable. and MTLOS, which stands for minimum tolerable level of safety, which is saying, and the combination of both of those is, is the system safety approach that NASA takes, which says, okay, like there's a minimal level of safety that I would like my system to have. Um, it needs to achieve this particular uh, like level of residual risk. And I'm going to make every effort to make the system as safe as practicable, but there are, you know, there are other constraints in which I'm operating. So, like, I cannot make a system reduce its level of availability for safety. So, you know, the, the, the safest autonomous car will never leave a parking space. And within the point of view of cost and the sort of economic benefits. So you, there, there, there are, of course, like challenging sacrifices that, that you have to make to, to come to like a safety like argument for whether or not the system is ready for deployment and whether or not the community can accept it. And autonomous vehicles, like you say, is is basically the the scariest use of incredibly complex cyber physical systems. You know, it, it, actually, it's worth it's worth talking about the structure of an autonomous vehicle. I a, a lot of them work. They basically split into three components. One is called like sensing or perception, which is basically a bunch of cameras, a bunch of LIDARs, which is very cool spinning radar type thing, and traditional radars and a few other sensors that, you know, take the world and generate an internal representation of that world. And it's generally, you know, a list of 3D objects plus a map where things are, what speed they're going, uh, what their heading is and where they are with respect to the road. And so that's the sensing 
component and then there's the planning component which you know based on that representation of the world and where the car wants to go comes up with uh, a high level trajectory or a goal to get there um, and then there's the act part which is the lower level actuation which is which is much more classical which sort of takes that trajectory and turns it into realizable basically acceleration steering wheel angle um, to yeah to, to get you where you want to go and obviously the challenges in in the first two and the the sort of it, it doesn't take you long working in the autonomous vehicle space to realize that you know the sensing component the perception side is always going to be inaccurate um, it's never you're, you're never going to get it perfectly um, and so the the planning side has to find a way to plan a trajectory safely uh, around this inaccuracies. And this is where you start to get a little bit of attention. And, you know, it's worth thinking about this in terms of a human driver, right? So like, you know, I go out driving all the time and I make mistakes about how far a car away is from me or what our relative speeds are. And implicitly, you know, if I'm not sure when I just seen a vehicle, I'll be like keeping a little bit further away until I'm clear and then I can then I can sort of like approach it a bit more. And we, we're sort of making all of these judgments of how, how inaccurate our perception is without even realizing it. And once you've got sort of neural networks involved, you, you need to have a better idea. And so you, you, you have this sort of compensation on the planning side for the weaknesses of the perception system. But at the same time, you can't compensate for everything. So you have to make the perception system as good as possible. And the traditional way of doing this, by the way, in, in systems where you have such an interface is by having requirements. So it's a contract. So system A provides a contract that, um, that system B takes. And this is a, actually a really neat approach for autonomous vehicles. So you can say, well, for vehicles that are less than 20 meters in front of me in the road, I may make an error of you know, up to one meter on how far away that vehicle is. Um, and once it starts raining, that error might get up to, you know, 10 meters. And so the planning side can decide to drive a little bit further away and, you know, even drive much slower when it's raining to reduce, you know, the, the, the risk of something bad happening due to this larger error. So, so basically what you're saying here is that the systems have to be, to some extent, aware of their own chance of failure and to be able to, to be able to quantify what well, quantification of that seems critically important but again the specifications can't be like we'll just always see the right thing they have to be uh we might see the right thing but within this tolerance of of what reality is basically and that's and that's the kind of thing that you're trying to hold these systems to yeah yeah exactly and so and so to me you get you get two big challenges in in autonomous vehicles one is then saying is the behavior of the planning system going to be safe with respect to the the sort of errors in which it operates under so you know can can i safely follow a vehicle and merge onto a highway in rain with that sort of perception testing and and you have to actually be quite clear about what safe is so it's it's actually you know the the highway code in uk is quite ambiguous in certain places um and purposefully so, I would argue, and in in quite a few places contradictory to what 
traffic does in general. So for example, the highway code says things like don't stop for any vehicles and everybody of course stops for emergency vehicles all the time um, and pulls to the side of the road and negotiates speak for yourself. quite well. <laughs> and then of course it says do not use your horn or flash your lights or use that for communication and everybody in the UK, you won't be familiar with this in the US, but in the UK roads are actually quite narrow and windy rather than have six lanes. Um, so one of the situations you get into a lot is that there may be parked cars at the side of the road, which means you have to negotiate with a car oncoming in order to go into its lane to cross. And the way people people do this in the UK is by flashing your lights to say, hey, come on, I'll wait on you. Uh, and of course, that's you know technically not allowed in the highway code. And so anyway, so you have to you have to figure out how how can I actually give a non-contradictory definition of what safe behavior for my system is under the assumption that I've got a good enough representation of the world. And so right. that's one of the big challenges. And um, and then the other problem is demonstrating and being confident that your planning or that your perception system story can actually meet this contract that the that the planner is operating under. Like, are you always only going to have one meter errors in the, the depth of a vehicle? That is how far away it is. Or is that just because that's all you've seen so far in your data? And so that is a huge problem, basically. Okay. So so then part, part of planning, um, so let's assume that the, the sensing is right and we can get into sensing later. Part of the planning sounds like it has a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of challenges that are that are actually interesting there for for you. How do you make sure that the planning is actually done in a way that's that's uh, that's reasonable and safe? Yeah. So so the approach the the approach that we've been working on is is trying to formalize some of the properties of what uh, a safe maneuver is and how you can sort of demonstrate what a system should do. Um, in, in practice. So, so let me, let me, let me give you an example of what type of things that an autonomous vehicle should do in, in certain situations. And then I can try try and sort of talk about how we actually start to express this formally and, and also test it. So the, the, like the background of course, to this should be that we are doing, you know, hundreds of thousands of simulations of different uh, like road traffic situations, um, all various types of them. And you need to have some sort of pass-fail criteria for each of them. And that's actually quite ambiguous, right? Because, you know, in, in various situations, there, there are more, there's more than one way in which you can safely negotiate um, a, a challenge. And there's a little bit of wiggle room. So it's, it's not like a traditional like software unit test where it's very clear what the resulting answer should be. And so we started to build like a framework that actually allows you to test whether or not you're achieving safe behaviors based on your own formal rules of the road. And so, you know, one of the, one of the types of scenarios that you tend to get in highway situations is you're driving along happily at say, you know, 70 miles an hour um, on the highway um, and there's a car in front of you in one of the other lanes and they cut into your lane because they're attempting to get to the exit or something like that but they're driving slower than you and so 
when they cut into the lane in front of you, you have what's called a sort of positive time to collision, which is, you know, if both vehicles were going to maintain the same speed, there would be a collision in, you know, X seconds. And a bad time to collision is for a human is something like two seconds because it takes us quite a while to react. And at higher speeds, these things become more dangerous. And so what you would like to have is, and, and this is something that you can't control. So the, the autonomous vehicle can't go around driving, assuming every vehicle is going to cut in in front of it. So never drive faster than any other car. And so the, the standard way in which like vehicles are expected to react safely is that you know once somebody starts that movement from their lane to your lane and you've detected them driving slower than you, you've got some reaction time in which you need to start braking and start getting closer to their speed um, and therefore have that time to collision starting to disappear or until you've opened up a safe following distance to that vehicle. And so that, that's actually quite a complicated property to express. And especially if you're just writing it in words and requirements and having software engineers attempt to implement it, especially when the implementation might be, you know, also, uh, you know, a, a sort of like AI based system or being a really complex optimization style like planner. How, how do you do it? So what we do is um, like we've basically like taken like temporal logics that you know, have been used for quite a long time to to express properties of, of, of systems. And in particular, we're using a logic called signal temporal logic, which is an extension of something like LTL that allows you to express properties in real value in real value signals. That's the, the history is, you know, essentially from electronic systems where you get signals. Um, and it also allows you to have, you know, bounded operators that are talking about things in terms of well, they're talking about seconds, right? So you can say, you know, eventually, you know, with a sort of bind of in up to three seconds, some sort of property holds. And so, you know, that that's how you get your sort of liveness properties. Um, and so we can, for, for that particular property that I was talking about, you can use something like the until operator in, in temporal logic that says, you know, if a certain, well, if a certain condition holds, that implies that, you are breaking until property B holds, which is the situation is now safe. Um, and you can even use these binds to say that you've got, uh, you know, 0.5 of a second to actually react and start breaking. And by being binded, um, you have to have increased that gap so that it's safe within, you know, three seconds or something like that. And you can, you know, you can even enforce that that's a, a, a function of the speed. And so what we built um, at Five, the company I work at, is uh, quite a sophisticated tool for evaluating these complex um, temporal logic constraints and also a language for writing them in a little bit more human-friendly way. So you can take these low-level like predicates and properties. So for example, what is the velocity of the vehicle? What is the velocity of the other vehicle in the scene? And what is the distance to like a lane marking? So we provide these, you know, atomic um, predicates that can then be built into complex temporal logic constraints. And you can say something like if a vehicle cuts into your lane, 
then you should react in this particular way. And, you know, we use this to, you know, basically express <laughs> extremely complex properties for, for autonomous vehicles. And the benefit of using signal temporal logic is that it has this magic quantitative semantics that instead of just saying true or false, I've broken the rule or I've not broken the rule, it actually gives you a signal out which says how safe I am or how close I am to breaking it. So it's like the truthiness or the falsiness of that given property. It sounds like on one end, you want presumably people that don't or never will precisely understand signal temporal logic to be able to write down some specifications using like saying things like when a car enters my lane, which obviously signal temporal logic by default does not, does not provide. So you have to build something up there. Um, you will then want to interpret that in a very formal fr framework with, with sort of written down semantics and then apply that presumably both to the, um, both to the simulations that you're running. And then also, uh, when, when cars are on, on the road, you want to be able to apply it in both of those situations. Is that kind of the, the end to end view and, and check whether those things that, that people wrote at a high level are actually happening or not. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's a few interesting things there. So make, let me make sure that I get back to talking about stuff in the real world. Um, but okay. on, <laughs> so, so, so ever since my PhD, I've been a, a little bit of a domain specific language nerd. So, you know, I've, I've been super interested in, in, in writing DSLs and their semantics. And so that this actually felt to me to be like the perfect opportunity to, to build a neat like DSL and like IDE on top of it. And so, yeah, what, what we, what we've done is a few things. So in, in particular, we, we built a language that allows you to, you know, quite easily like build named expressions and functions and and even lambdas um it's kind of higher order actually um that that allows you to build up like libraries of temporal logic properties and so like as as a tool as a sort of commercially available tool like our libraries come with you know properties like like has there been a lane change which are parameterized according to like some various definitions so the lane change property, which is, you know, has has a vehicle change lane starting at this time step and finishing at that time step takes parameters like at what initial lateral velocity. So at what, at what sort of turning of the steering wheel, <laughs> for want of a better word, like, do you want to actually consider the, the lane change to happen or do you want to actually only consider it starting once you touch the lane marking or do you want some other so we, we offer a lot of different definitions for that that people can compose together but at some point you you do still need to have a little bit of an understanding of the semantics of the underlying temporal logic and that is actually that is actually quite challenging um, because tem temporal <laughs> temporal logic and especially ours because it also supports um, past temporal operators like since and historically, which can be more intuitive to write things, but they they boggle the brain when you're com composing them with future temporal logic operators. So uh, we've we've had to write a, a lot of documentation to to help people understand how to build these things. And and this is um, this is something that actually when we talked to Rod Chapman, um, this is something that like kind of clicked into place for me. Is I've been interested in DSLs for a long time, but more from the language side. And when I, you know, 
in the past when I heard DSL, I was like, oh, great, I get to design a language with a bunch of features. But I think you just sort of explained this as well. Uh, it's the domain part that that is super helpful um, in making these things usable. And, and I like the fact that you can pack in information about what it means to be on the road into the, your language is what makes it really unique. And then I, the, the language stuff has to be done, <laughs> um, but it sort of stays under the hood. Like if, if, if you've done your job right there as a language designer, nobody knows about how hard the signal temporologic semantics are, right? Like it works and it does like, it does the thing that you said, right? Like I said, I want to know when the, when a car changed lanes, or I said, I want to know when my car is going to change lanes and that happens faithfully. So that means you did your work right there, but hopefully nobody ever has to, hopefully ever, nobody has to know how hard that, that composition is basically. Yeah, exactly. And this, this reminds me of, so of, of course my PhD was in like interactive theorem proving formal methods. So like, I always think of analogies in that space, like, you know, in interactive theorem proving, you obviously start with low level axioms and you start building, you know, layers of representation on top of it where if you've done that right, you don't actually have to refer to the lower level axioms at all. Um, most, most of the time you can, you can talk about it at higher level concepts. And so you end up, you know, you're, you're proving theorems about um, like calculus or whatever, without having to refer to anything underneath that. That, that, that's a really good thing. And like, we're not, I don't think we're entirely there yet. We haven't sort of like completed the theory space as it were, but, um, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a good ambition. And, you know, the other thing that's really cool is that, you know, this is an integrated development environment. So I, I, I get the right little checks that says, oh, by the way, um, do you, do you really mean to use this? Because it doesn't like match from a typing perspective. And so I can do, do a little bit of type theory to, to help people. Um, yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool approach. So this is a product that, that five AI aims to make available to, to, to people working on, uh, on autonomous vehicles in general? Yeah. So, so as a, as a company, we're, we're building a platform for simulation based verification and validation. And one, one of the sort of key features that, that, that we have of it is this language and this language package and actually an incredibly efficient framework for evaluating these temporal logic constraints that I, maybe I, I shouldn't talk too much about like nerdy caching or anything like that, but we sort of have a really neat technique that means that you can do super fast recomputation if you want to change your temporal logic constraint, because we always save, um, you know, think about it as, you know, a massive abstract syntax tree. So any anytime you get a, a pattern match in the syntax tree in any expression, we cache that and we don't recompute mm. it. So that, that that's kind of cool. Um, um, it sounds like the... The, this this sort of tool set comes also with um you said libraries i'm assuming there's other scenarios and, and situations that happen that you can then build on top of if you're using these tools is that is that right real quick mm -hmm. okay so yeah yeah exactly so how do you make sure those are <laughs> those are right like you know when i say then make if this happens then do a lane change a lane change you you've you've made sure that that's that's what that is yeah exactly so this is this is the real world validation side of things so in in some very few cases um we are lucky because other people have done some work for us so in mostly europe and a few other places in the world there's some un regulations that car manufacturers must obey for what a safe lane change is and that talks about 
basically like if you change lane you must not force any other vehicle to decelerate at a given rate for a given amount of time after a given reaction time, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, these are being already tested and determined to be uh, safe according to that regulation. And you know, if you follow the regulations, everything's great. Um, and, and we can relatively easily encode that. But the, the much broader challenge is, is that you have to have a way to one, you, you have to have a way to evaluate these same rules when you're driving in the real world, either as a human or evaluating other vehicles. And, you know, one of the cool things that we do is, you know, anytime our autonomous vehicle goes out and drives in the road, we collect a lot of data that includes, you know, seeing other vehicles changing lane, lanes beside us or in front of us or something. And we can evaluate these very same rules to on on a different vehicle that's not our own system and say uh, are you following the rules and you probably will not be surprised to learn that quite a lot of the time human drivers don't follow the same stringent safety requirements as an autonomous vehicle would follow yeah so 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 what we what we're essentially trying to build is mechanisms that can actually evaluate whether or not that rule was triggered in a situation that a human believed it to be triggered in, uh, or whether or not any of the preconditions of a given rule failed, but the conclusion still still occurred. And so it's it's tricky, and we don't really have anything like all the answers right now because it's a it's a big data challenge primarily. But we're we're very aware of this challenge um, as our quite a lot of the sort of regulatory bodies in the, across the world and governments trying to figure out exactly how to formalize their requirements for safe behavior. Um, so I'm hoping that through like a lot of collaboration between all of the stakeholders, plus, you know, enough data to validate our rules that at some point we'll get to a point where it feels like you could write um, a digital highway code in signal temporal logic and be pretty happy with that as being representative of what what should be safe behavior. But there's, there's definitely a few potholes along the way. Potholes, right? So that's an I mean it's an interesting challenge. In, in the long in the long run, what you're hoping for is like, well, obviously, like people aren't going to follow the rules, right? I think we pretty well established that at this point. Like it, it doesn't it, well. Uh, you know, we can talk about enforcement separately and like how those things get approached. But the reality is, um, I guess autonomous vehicles are going to be on the road with people and people, you know, intentionally or unintentionally are going to consistently break the, the traffic rules. Um, and so I guess I'm curious in some sense why this, why this matters, basically, like we can have a traffic code, um, it might influence reality, but at the end of the day, um, an autonomous vehicle still has to do its best, even when other people are, you know, even when other, in particular, non-autonomous vehicles, because maybe there's a world where all the autonomous vehicles eventually follow the rules. Um, they still need to try to keep people safe. Um, so, so how does how do these worlds sort of? Is this a long-term vision, or is there short-term value in doing this as well? Yeah, I, I mean, in in a world where all vehicles are connected and autonomous, it's it's relatively straightforward to prove that there will never be a crash assuming there are no humans involved, like pedestrians or anything like that. There's, I've read at least one paper that gives a proof of that. Um, 
but yeah, so so there's sort of two things to do with this. So one of one of the way, reasons in which we're we're keen to see what other drivers do with respect to these formal rules is that it helps us actually validate some of the driver models you use in simulation. So in simulation, when you're testing these vehicles, you you have a car doing a cut in and you simulate all sorts of different cut-ins. And if you have enough data of what types of cut-ins humans do, then you can weight your distribution so you can sort of focus your simulation in the, the, the right areas and be confident that it looks the same. And that the, the example I always use in this is this case is like a sort of weird, like, interaction between two different drivers who are trying to understand each other's intentions so you know if you're if you're driving along a road and there's a car edging out of a junction a minor junction in front of you that that car is trying to figure out can i go there um and the car approaching the junction is trying to say figure out is that car going to go and so as a result that that driver might slow down which makes the decision of the other vehicle a little bit easier um, and and vice versa. Um, and these are quite nuanced sort of back and forth communication that happens with human drivers. And it's quite difficult to actually encode that and get that to come out in simulation. And so you might be simulating all sorts of variations of cars pulling pulling out of a junction. But if your model doesn't allow for these types of hesitant situations where a car is is gradually pulling out and stopping pulling out and stopping you you might just be missing a little bit of a part of the 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 search space by like lack of model fidelity and so that that's sort of one of the reasons why we try to make use of you know not just failures of our autonomous vehicle in the real world and that that amount of data but we actually try to i sort of squeeze as much juice out of that 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 real world data is possible by using it to validate models of other vehicles that you use in simulation. And and I guess in the long run, you know, the pessimistic side of me says like all cars are never going to be in communication or if they are, then they're never going to be honest about it. So it's something like having traffic rules is like in the long run might be the, the protocol by which um, vehicles are like, are able to communicate is like, well, we can, we can get you in trouble if you do this. So like, you can't do that. Like just setting boundaries on, uh, you know, we experience it with humans. Like there's game theory happening out on the road every day where um, some people are getting to work quite a bit faster because they're willing to take risks that, that others aren't. And so, yeah, they'll swerve, they'll swerve between lanes and take advantage of the, of the more cautious drivers. Um, and that, you know, it, it seems plausible that that world could, could be where, where autonomous vehicles end up as well. Cause like, yeah, I want, I'm, I like to get to work fast. So I'm going to buy the car that, uh, <laughs> That, that pushes things farther is is like a you know a somewhat dystopian uh, view of the future, but um, you know one that's maybe not that hard to imagine. So so doing this code stuff early, uh, like getting the laws encoded in a way that we can know what uh, cars are supposed to be doing, I guess from that point of view is is immensely valuable because then we can you know draw limits on on how unsafe cars are uh, going forward as well. Yeah, I, and I think I, I've, of course this will like open up the can of worms about like ethics in in driving for autonomous vehicles and you know like even you know even yeah is it like ethical to be um breaking the rules in this particular situation because you know all other vehicles are and then like 
Mm-hmm. That yeah, there's 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 dragons in there, <laughs> but I think it's going to be a while before we start to get into these types of situations. Yeah. Like the the thing you're going to find first of all, of course, is humans who are, for want of a better word, trolling autonomous vehicles. Right. So, you know, in the streets of London, the first autonomous vehicle that drives drives very slowly through a crowded street is going to obviously get pedestrians walking out in front of it just to make it stop and then you we're going to have to cope with that and we're going to have to cope with you know cyclists taking advantage of them in various ways um <laughs> are you programming in a like a little arm that raises <laughs> a metal finger on the window a specific number of fingers <laughs> yeah fair enough a specific number of fingers is better than <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, there's a, you know, different countries have different number of configurations <laughs> of fingers, I think that are, that are meaningful. So we don't want to, we don't want to, uh, you know, yeah. overemphasize our American perspective. I, yeah, I, I think fine. people in Britain are pretty familiar with the middle finger. <laughs> yeah. We're, 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 we're sort of multilingual as it were <laughs> in very many different ways. I, I mean, I guess any number of upward raised fingers can probably be read as an insult, right? Especially if it's like the back of your hand. It's yeah, yeah. just like, it just reads as, <laughs> it reads as aggressive. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is, you know, all the, all the big level four or the, the big, the big companies doing level four autonomous driving level four being mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of big daddy with no, no humans behind the steering wheel. Like their, their main challenge is internationalization. So being able to, go to other cities and, and give obscene gestures to, to people. Um, yeah. Right. You don't want to accidentally like be, you know, encourage people to, to cut you off by using the wrong hand gesture, you know, thumbs up maybe is, is good in some places and not so good. In others. Hey, speaking of like when you have to break the rules, this is the signal temporal logic sounds like a great way to encode some of the stuff you should do, but you know, you have, um, you have a property that explains what it means to do a lane change one, what does it mean to do a safe one and one to never cross lane boundaries at the same time when I'm on the highway and there's something going on where I can't avoid a crash. I swerve to the, to the side, to the side of the road where you know, technically you just aren't supposed to do that. Or I haven't been in this situation, but I imagine that if I'm about to hit a very small car with my SUV and uh, I can instead choose to hit a bigger truck. I'm going to hit the truck. Um, All of these, especially the lane change, let's take that uh, as a more simple one. Is there, are you thinking, or are we not there yet in terms of how do you program those in? Yeah, yeah. And let me, let me add another layer of complexity. Like, you know, generally you want to drive comfortably. And so most of the time, actually, you also have rules written in signal temporal logic again, um, that say, you know, don't accelerate greater than three meters per second squared or decelerate with that laterally, longitudinally different, you know, different values. And of course, if you have to do an emergency stop, you break that rule. And so this does get quite complicated because as you say, you have a rule that says, don't leave your lane. But actually, if you're doing a lane change, you need to leave your lane. And, um, And so you would technically break that rule. And so the, the, the way we approach this is a combination of um, building assumptions and conditions into certain rules. So, you know, d- don't change your, don't leave your lane unless um, you're performing a lane change. Um, don't leave your lane unless um, there is a sort of 
the the sort of way we express it is in terms of um you know really dangerous time to collisions and there's not enough time to break and you've got space to, to change lanes so there's you, you you end up building quite complicated properties and the thing I, I i do actually have this concern that when when you end up with a world that is so so very complex that you'll start having properties that are um that have so many assumptions or conditions on them that you might end up getting some contradictions and um missing missing particular spaces and to, to be honest we haven't we haven't got to a, a world that is so complicated as that right now we've in we, we spent a lot of time modeling safety in the highway for you know driving highways and changing lanes and merging and so you can you can quite easily also in the same logic express what it means to be a reasonable lane change so one of the properties that we can express is well don't change lane unnecessarily and this is this is sort of like I, I don't know maybe it's like a liveness style property that you've got so it's like saying talking about making progress so you know one of the other express like rules that we have is make sure you're driving at a reasonable speed for that particular highway based on the conditions and that that's slightly different from like the standard safety properties that you get and so we've got a couple of mechanisms one is these conditions and then the other is we in the dsl itself we we have categories of different rules so we can like express rules which are more on comfort and rules which are more normative to do with following the highway code and some which are safety and other various other types of categories oh so category so basically the comfort thing you you downgrade it to like hey this is a nice to have but if when push comes to shove you can ignore it yeah so we so we basically by 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 introducing these categories and and hierarchies you can you can basically provide enough data so that any downstream analysis can can make the decisions that it wants to and you know the the, the standard model that we have in our workflow is you know it's a bad thing if you break a comfort rule when you're nowhere near breaking a a safety rule mm -hmm. um and we can we can do this because right. of this neat property that i mentioned earlier and meant to come back to about temporal logic and that it talks about truthiness and falsiness by having a signal about you know how close to a failure you are because there instead of just you know black and white you you can so for you know for a rule that says don't collide with any other vehicles um that rule is actually the the signal that comes out of that rule is basically how far away from any other vehicle or how far away from the closest vehicle to you are you so it's not actually saying i've collided it's saying I am, I am intersecting with that vehicle because I'm so close and you can obviously put like a little like a sort of halo around it to make sure that your collision is actually getting too close. And Is it just how far I am or is it also how different our speeds are if I'm going towards a, a vehicle or something like that? Or is it just distance? This particular rule is using distance. Um, you know, the, 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 the flexibility that that we have in the platform is, you know, we have other rules which say, don't have, a, let me say it correctly, don't be responsible for a very low time to collision with another vehicle. So 
if a car is coming up behind you with a very high speed differential, um, they're they're almost certainly going to crash into you, and right. the 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 distance will will catch that. Um, but there's also you know a, a way of looking at it in terms of time to collision. But you know one of the properties is if if we are coming up against another vehicle that we haven't seen at a high time to collision, there's a there's another rule that will pick that up. So we try to keep rules at the right level of abstraction. We can we actually take advantage of this like signal nature of of the the logic in a few different ways because you can actually so in 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 what we were just talking about um you you can actually use it to say that you know if we're actually relatively close to another vehicle and the no collision rule is close to passing then maybe you want to stop caring about the comfort rule that's that's sort of how we can use it but the other way we use it is is to allow you to direct the search space of your scenarios. Is there a cat or something? Um, there we go. <laughs> my 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 dog is locked safely upstairs. Otherwise, she would be on my lap, um, <laughs> getting in the way. Um, so yeah. So one of the things that we use with this this signal nature is we use it to actually direct the search. So for example. In, in simulation, you have parameters. You have a, what we call a scenario, which is basically an abstract definition of a traffic situation, and they have parameters. So you can you can basically describe abstractly a vehicle will start driving x meters in front of you, y meters per second slower than you, and when it's z meters in front of you, it will cut in at. <laughs> I've ran out of letters like a meters per second lateral velocity. And so you've got basically four parameters which are controlling to some extent the seriousness of this cut in behavior, right? So a high velocity delta between you is going to mean that when it's cutting in, it's getting really close to you. And a high lateral velocity means it's going to happen quickly. So it's harder to spot. And so scenarios get more complicated than that. But, you know, for example, if we have rules evaluating how close you got to collision in a scenario, we can actually do something like, the easiest way to think about it is like gradient descent for like neural network training, where if you make small changes to the parameters, you can find which parameter change leads to the largest change in the in the safety rule which which gets you closest to failure and you can sort of search in that direction to find failures and this is this is super useful actually because one of the big problems is that the search space for scenarios and simulation is huge right you've got many different parameters that are impacting a traffic situation and you have potential and and not just say potential actual non-linearity in these systems because the perception system might do something weird or the planning system. So you can't just say that because I was safe between five meters per second and six meters, I'll be safe at 5.5 because something could go wrong there. Um, so this, uh, this conversation is really actually reminding me of, of the conversation we had with um, Dan Guido. And one of the big things that came up there was... Um, and, and he was talking about like what what the blockchain uh, what what blockchain developers are doing right basically, uh, and one of the main things that came out was the idea that testability is absolutely critical, 
And what I'm hearing from you is, is a, sort of the same thing. Like you're able to develop these uh, incredibly complicated logics and change, chains of rules and priorities in part because you can go to simulation and see if those things make sense. Uh, and you can do it over and over. And presumably you can get feedback on like, well, we put this new rule in and it never triggered. Like you can get that kind of feedback really quick or we put this rule in and it was resulting in crashes all the time. Um, and like the, it's incredibly empowering to have, like, be able to get such quick feedback about whether, you know, and it's probabilistic feedback, right? Like no one's being like, yes, that's good. No, that's bad. But you can get a sense of like, does this broadly make, does is this broadly working for our system? And that seems like it's part of what's enabled you to build such a complicated, but useful system at the end of the day. Yeah. Being like, have being able to efficiently and accurately explore the the huge search space of of you know driving in the real world in, in simulation is is like the the key challenge and like basically everything everything we're doing and you know everything i work on now in, in research is is to find ways to to search that space more efficiently and get more information out of it um yeah that's for sure so it sounds like signal temporal logic in general is very useful to express these uh, kind of more complicated rules. I'm thinking about subject area experts and I'm wondering how, how you're bringing in that input. So there's the codes and then there's the rules, but I'm naively thinking there's people who, whose area is driving or like, you know, the, the road and the rules of the road. I don't know who they are. I don't know what that job is, but I'm, I'm curious about how you think about bringing that input into especially how you design those libraries um, that then, you know, get, get in the hands of people building an autonomous cars. Yeah. So, so interestingly, at five, we, um, we, we work. We're with all forensic... truck drivers. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I, I mean, interestingly, there's so many people who have, you know, backgrounds in, in formula mm. one and all sorts of like, Drive, driving spaces and a lot with like advanced driving qualifications and huh. I'm kind of embarrassed when I'm com in conversations with these people because they know so much more than me about this but also actually like work with people whose job is let me I, I'll try and get the title right it's like a forensic crash investigation specialist so so th these are people whose job is to you know, analyze a crash and understand what the contributing factors were, where and what where blame might lie and so on. And they are incredibly useful for um, giving you very clear and precise understandings of what right of way might be or what a sort of safe behavior in a given situation could be. And the challenge, of course, is I, I'm not going to subject these people necessarily to um to temporal logic that's they they made a different career choice so, so you know you have to you have to find a way to to sort of help um get these subject matter experts um like views formalized and you know one of the things you can do is once you formalize it you can the the, the good thing about formalizing things is that actually we have a good understanding of the boundaries of these situations um with respect to you know some of the parameters in the equations um, so we can actually, you know, generate synthetic data based on the models that can help validate that the decision boundaries are correct, if you see what I mean. So 
you know, we we know exactly for certain, it's like counter example checking or something like that, like the equivalent that you can like give people confidence that the decision boundaries are right. And we find that, that in fact, we tweak them sometimes as a result of getting that. Um, but yeah, these people have a lot of knowledge. Thanks for tuning in for the first conversation of this two-part episode. Please find a link to part two in the description.